The text for the sermon this afternoon is the word of God as the church has summarized and confessed it in Lord's Day 19 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You can find this on page 533 of the Book of Praise. Lord's Day 19, here we confess, why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. And after the sermon, we will begin to respond by singing together Psalm 98, the stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 19, we come to the end of the catechism study of the articles in the Apostles' Creed that deal with God the Son and our redemption. As you go through each Lord's Day and you consider each article of the Apostles' Creed as the catechism explained it, then you cannot help but notice the beautiful trajectory on which it sets our mind. The early articles that dealt with God the Son, they introduced us to who our Savior is. They took each one of his names and each one of his titles, and they explained them to us, showing the rich redemption of Christ that each name pointed to. Well, from there, the articles of the Creed considered the humiliation and the suffering that the Son of God endured for the sake of his people. And again, it took, out the, it took the time to draw out the meaning and the importance of his suffering so that we might be left marveling in amazement at what Jesus Christ has done for us. And then after dealing with his humiliation, the Apostles' Creed and also the Catechism move into the stage of his glorification. Because death could not hold Christ. He was raised from the dead And he ascended into heaven as we confess in Lord's Day 18. But one thing that brings all those events together that the Catechism and the Creed have dealt with is that they are things that all took place in the past. Yes, they have a great deal of significance for us today as well. But they all happened about 2,000 years ago. But as you know, there's more in the Creed. It doesn't leave us in the past It also gives us guidance for the present and direction for the future. 
with the last two articles that deal with God the Son, we see where everything that happened in the past is going in the future. And when you really know who Christ is, and we're not speaking about just knowing who he is in your head, but you know who he is in your heart, and you believe him with that true faith, then all these things that the catechism brings out are a great source of comfort. And about that, I preach to you the word of God this afternoon under this theme, the comfort of truly knowing Christ. And we'll see how this applies to knowing him first as head and secondly as judge. Congregation, this past week we celebrated the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. And you know that he did not go up into heaven in order to take an extended holiday since his work was done and he needed a chance to take a break. Instead, Lord's Day 18 makes it clear that he is currently in heaven carrying out his task as our great high priest. He is interceding for us before his father. But there is more to his work because not only is he our great high priest, he is also our eternal king. And so answer 50 begins by saying that Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church. That is, he went up into heaven to continue working in his office as king. Well, to understand what the catechism is teaching us here, we have to understand the meaning of the word manifest. To manifest means to make it clear to the eye or to the understanding. It means to prove something beyond any shadow of a doubt. So we should not understand manifest here as Christ going into heaven to establish himself as the head of his church. Christ always has been the head of his church. Christ always will be the head of his church. That's a fact that cannot be changed. But by going up into heaven, Christ did so to prove to everyone, beyond a shadow of any doubt, that he is the head of the church. But not only is Christ the head of his church, he is at the same time the king of all creation. Answer 50 of the Catechism also says that he ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church through whom the Father governs all things. Well, through whom the Father governs all things does not refer to the church here. It refers to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And with this phrase, the governing of all things, you hear the language of Lord's Day 10 coming back. There we confessed concerning the providence of God that it is his almighty and ever-present power whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them. And then the catechism continues from there by speaking about leaf and blade, rain and drought, and so on. God the Father has entrusted the governing of this entire world, everything that we can see around us, to his Son. God the Son has complete and sovereign control over all the different affairs of this world and over everything that happens in our life. 
But that does not mean that his reign over this world has been fully established, as though there is no longer any opposition. There are still those who rebel against the authority of the king. Satan and his demons are constantly working to undermine the rule of Christ. They refuse to bow down before the one who has all authority. They strive to destroy his rule in every possible way. And the forces of darkness stir up people here on earth to challenge Christ's authority as well. But that doesn't simply mean that Christ allows them to get away with their rebellion. The head of the church has charged his people with helping him to assert his reign over the entire earth. Note, congregation, that it was after Christ told his disciples that he had all authority in heaven and on earth, that's when he told them to go and make disciples of all nations. Christ uses his church to spread his rule here on earth. And he doesn't do so because he needs the church. Instead, this is the way that God has sovereignly ordained it. It means that the church cannot sit back here on earth, simply waiting for her head to come back. No, the church is to be busy and active, proclaiming to everyone the lordship of Jesus Christ, calling all men to repentance and to bow the knee before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in order to help his church with this most beautiful calling, the ascended head of the church pours out gifts upon his members by his spirit. We read that in answer 51. He equips his church to do their task in spreading his authority. The question we have is, what exactly are those heavenly gifts? Well, if you look at the footnote in the catechism, we are directed to Ephesians chapter 4, where it spells out some of these particular gifts. Here it speaks about some being called to be apostles, some to be prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. So what the text there is really speaking about in Ephesians 4 is the office bearers of the church. The office bearers are a gift of the ascended Lord to his church here on earth. And the purpose of this gift is also spelled out in Ephesians 4 verse 12. There it says that God has given these men to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. The task of the office bearers is not to take all the work on themselves and to be doing everything they possibly can in the church with leaving nothing for the rest of the congregation to do. The task of the office bearers is to prepare all of God's people for a life of service to the king. That is to be the goal of every bit of the work that office bearers do. That's part of how the preaching should function each and every Sunday. That's how the visit should function. That's what all the meetings should be working toward. To prepare God's people for works of ministry so that they in turn may continue in every aspect of their own lives to proclaim the kingship of Jesus Christ. But we cannot simply mention the office bearers when it comes to the heavenly gifts that are poured out. The words of our scripture reading show us very clearly that there are more. 
When we look at 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, then the Apostle Paul writes about the faith of the Thessalonians growing more and more. And he writes about the love that they have for each other continuing to increase. Well, those are not simply human feelings or emotions that are growing because of man's initiative. Those are heavenly gifts that Christ pours out upon his members. And Paul continues in verse 4 by speaking about the steadfastness and faith of the Thessalonian believers. Again, steadfastness or perseverance, you could say. It's another one of the gifts that Christ pours out through his spirit. But there's another gift that Paul lays out as well in this chapter. We find it in the verses 5 through 10. There it speaks in some detail about what will happen at the time that Christ returns from heaven. And we'll consider those words more in our second point. But the fact that Paul takes the time to lay these things out so clearly is because there is another gift that is being poured out upon the members of the church. And that is the gift of hope. Living under present trials and persecutions, as Paul says in verse 4, the Thessalonians had great hope for something even better in the future. And so when you take all these things, you put them together, you actually have three heavenly gifts poured out through the Spirit. And these gifts the Apostle Paul also speaks about in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. Certainly there are many more gifts that Christ pours out upon his church. But those three gifts are what it really comes down to. When you truly know Jesus Christ from the heart, those are the greatest gifts that he gives to his church. Because it's by faith that his people are linked to him. It's by faith that they can claim the benefits of his work. It's by faith that man may live in fellowship with God, having been declared righteous in God's sight. That is the most beautiful gift given to the church by her head. And it's also the common faith that ultimately binds the members of the church together. And then as we live out of this special bond, we also grow in love for our fellow members. The members of the church do not act in isolation from one another and without care for one another, but they work together because they genuinely love each other from the heart. It's a love rooted in the fact that the love of God has been poured out upon us in Christ. It's a love that does not remain inactive, but it drives us to love God all the more and to love our fellow believers. And united by our common faith, working out of love for God and the neighbor, we also live together in hope. We look forward to the time when our head returns and there is that perfect reunion between all the members of the church from all times and all places, that reunion between the church and her head. The hope that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit drives us to reflect on the reality that we live by faith and not by sight. We look forward to the time when Christ's authority is in fact recognized by all his enemies 
and all his enemies have been completely conquered. So for those who truly know Christ as their Lord and Savior, then they really see how Christ continues to benefit his, head, his church, how he continues to provide everything that his church needs. The catechism makes it clear that Christ also defends and preserves his church. And we might wonder exactly how he does this. After all, if you look around the world today, you don't see Christ fighting here on earth with a sword. We don't actively see him confronting the different enemies that the church faces, not even those physical enemies that we face, people who would seek to destroy the church of Christ. We didn't see Jesus Christ come down and confront those people who murdered 20 Coptic Christians in Egypt this past week. But he is, a, he is fighting. He is defending. He is preserving. And he is able to do this because he governs all people and all creation. It has happened so many times over the course of history. It looked like the church here on earth was about to be completely wiped out. It appeared small. It appeared insignificant in the sight of men. But at his perfect time, the Lord would raise a defender of the church. He would raise men to confront the heresies that threatened his church to guide his people back on the ways of the truth. He would raise men who would confront those who wish to physically crush the church. Again, Christ would use human vessels in defending and preserving his church. But not only does he defend, the catechism says he also preserves. By the Holy Spirit whom he has poured out upon his people, he preserves them in the ways of righteousness. He uses the scriptures to direct his people to the only possible way of salvation, which is through his precious blood. Our Savior ensures that those whom he has chosen and those who he has bought will never leave the way of faith. And so again, when you truly know who Christ is, when you know everything he has done, everything he continues to do for his church, then brothers and sisters, what a beautiful comfort you have. There's no reason to live in fear of anyone or anything. Our Lord is currently governing over all things and he is doing so for the good of those whom he loved so much that he humbled himself to death on a cross. Think about that, brothers and sisters. Christ loved you so much that he died for you. Christ governs over all things for your benefit. Christ continues to pour out heavenly blessings by his Holy Spirit upon you. So what more do you need for the present? What more assurance that Christ will never abandon you? When you know who he is and what he's done, and you see so clearly that he gives you everything you need for your present pilgrimage. But then he also gives his church the sure knowledge that he is going to come back someday. Not only as the eternal king, but also as the almighty judge. That brings us to our second point.
the final article of the Apostles' Creed concerning God the Son is that he will return to judge the living and the dead. When you first hear that, it sounds more like an ominous threat than a comfort of any kind. And that's especially true when we know what he will judge at that time. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All people, from all times and all places, they are going to be judged on the basis of what they have done in this life that God has given to them. And that's a terrifying thought, is it not? Because is there any one of us who can honestly come before the judgment seat and claim that we have done nothing wrong and claim that we are without guilt? The sad reality is that each one of us is very sinful. We've all done many things every day that were wicked in the sight of God. And even one of those sins that we have committed is enough to condemn us for eternity before the judge of heaven and earth. So the fact that Christ is going to come back as judge, it appears to be a very scary thought. At that time, he is going to hold each one accountable for what they have done. It doesn't sound very comforting. The thought of having all our sins revealed and made clear in the sight of God, that's something we would rather not even think about. But the catechism makes it very clear that the return of Christ is the most comforting thing for the Christian. Because the very one who is going to come back as judge is the one who made the full payment for every single one of our sins. Our judge is the one who promises to each one of his children in their baptism that he washes them clean from all their sins with his precious blood. Yes, as judge, he knows the sins that we are guilty of, but he also knows that because we are united to him by faith, those sins no longer stand against us. And what a beautiful thing that is, brothers and sisters, because on that great day of judgment, our guilt will not serve to testify against us. Instead, what we are really going to see on that day is just how great, how incredible, how marvelous the work of Jesus Christ really is. On the day of judgment, we will not hear the verdict of guilty and the sentence of eternal punishment. Instead, on the day of judgment, we are going to hear, you are innocent. And you'll hear the reward. Enter into heavenly joy and glory. And so once again, when you know who Christ is, when you believe everything that he has done, then the fact that he is coming to judge the living and the dead is a tremendous comfort. After all, who here does not want to hear the verdict that they are righteous and they are innocent in God's sight? Who does not want to receive that reward of heavenly joy and glory? Because through faith, that is exactly what you have to look forward to. But the Catechism also has more to say about the return of Christ as judge. 
It starts answer 52 by speaking about the current circumstances of God's people, namely our sorrow and persecution. And there's two things that are being referred to here. There's the persecution that comes from outside influences. The world that is at enmity with God does its best to torment believers here on earth. And they do everything they possibly can to make people fall away from the faith. The Catechism also speaks about our current sorrow. Yes, the persecution that the church experiences today can be very troubling. But there is also sorrow, which comes from the fact that we still experience the brokenness caused by sin in so many ways. There is sorrow because we know with our, about our sins, and we live with the guilt of our sins, and they trouble us when we recognize just how offensive our sin really is in the sight of God. There's no denying the fact, congregation, that our current circumstances are not the ideal in any way. This is not the type of world that God created. This is not the life that God intended us to have. But it's not the way that things are going to be forever either. Neither the sorrow of sin nor the trouble caused by the enemies will have the final say. Because Christ is going to return as judge. And at that time, he's going to set the record perfectly straight. We've seen already how he deals with the sorrow caused by sin. And that he replaces that sorrow with heavenly joy and glory. But the Catechism also makes it clear that he will not only deal with the problem of our sin, he will also deal with the problem of our persecution. He'll deal with the trouble caused by his and my enemies. The Catechism says it plainly, he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. And you cannot help but notice the very personal language that the Catechism uses here. It doesn't speak about the enemies of everyone else. It speaks about my enemies. Those enemies who do not cease to attack me every day. Certainly those enemies, those same enemies war against others. We don't deny that. But the catechism makes it personal for each one who truly knows Christ. They can say, all my enemies will be cast into eternal condemnation. Meaning that sin that you have to fight against every single day will be cast away forever. Satan, the head of the forces of darkness, who hates every person belonging to God, including you, who daily launches his forces to attack you, he will be cast with all his demons into the lake of fire. And any person who chooses to ally himself with the forces of darkness and torment the people of God will join their master in eternal judgment. Jesus Christ is going to set the record straight and he will give each one the judgment upon their actions. For those who are linked to him by faith, for those who are covered by his blood and have their righteousness credited to their account, that is a beautiful thought. But for those who do not believe in Christ, the thought of that judgment is terrifying. Without truly knowing Christ, without believing in his work, they have no hope. And these things come out so powerfully in that passage we read together. 
There in verses 8 and 9 we read, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. These people wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ in this life and so in the end they are going to be shut out from his presence for all eternity. Meaning in the end they're going to get exactly what they wanted. And knowing that Christ is going to do these things is a tremendous source of comfort for the individual believer. Again, in 2 Thessalonians 1, we read, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The coming of the judge from heaven is when all the people of God will finally get relief from all their trouble and from all their sorrow and persecution. And it sounds harsh to think about it that way. That we should long for the day when our enemies receive the fruits of their life of unbelief. But that is why the catechism words things the way it does. Because this isn't only about our enemies. Ultimately, it's about his enemies who are also our enemies. We are secondary in this whole matter. Those who hate us hated Christ first. They wanted nothing to do with him. They cannot stand the sound of his name. They don't want to give thought that he might be the Lord and master. Those enemies are not filled with apathy as though they don't even really care whether God exists or he doesn't. It doesn't work that way. Either a person loves God or a person hates God. There is no in-between here. And since our God is a holy God who does not compromise his perfect standard in any way, those who actively hate him, those who actively rebel against the authority of his son must be dealt with accordingly. And that is why today we can still sing the songs that cry out for God to vindicate his people. We can still sing those songs that cry out for God to judge those who do everything to make the life of those in the church miserable in every possible way. It's why we can cry out with David in Psalm 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? This isn't a matter of our own personal vindication. This is a matter of God vindicating himself. This is God punishing those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And therefore, we may look forward to the time when God does exactly that. We may look forward to the time when Christ returns as judge of the living and the dead, the time when he will set the record perfectly straight. Those who have lived by faith will receive the fullness of their reward. Those who hated God and his son and also his people will receive the fruit of their actions. The return of the king is the great comfort of the church. And the comfort of this time has been beautifully worded by Guido de Bre in Belgian Confession, Article 37. The time this confession was written, it was a time of great persecution for the church. Many faced death for the sake of their faith. And yet in the face of all sorrow and persecution, Guido de Bre and also we today may confess these words about the coming of the judge. For then 
their full redemption will be completed and they will receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. Their innocence will be known to all and they will see the terrible vengeance God will bring upon the wicked who persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. And a little later he continues, their cause at present, condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil authorities, will be recognized as the cause of the Son of God. That is the great comfort of the church. That gives us every reason to continue living by faith. The enemies of the church do not have the final say because the judge is going to come. The judge is going to set the record straight And so we eagerly pray every day, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, amen.